Hello and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svarogur. And my name is Thomas Simonsen Banbra. And today we are discussing David Lynch's latest movie, Inland Empire from 2006. Yeah. Starring Laura Dern as Nikki Grace and Sue Blue and maybe some other characters. Jeremy Irons as Kingsley Stewart. Justin Thoreau as Devon Burke and Billy Side. Harry Dean Stanton in a nice little role as Freddie Howard. Natasha Kinski as The Lady. We have Carolina Gruska as Lost Girl. Gustav Mikras as The Phantom. Peter J. Lucas as Piotr Kroll and Smithy. And there's a bunch of smaller roles which are also quite nice. Uh, Grace Sabrinsky, who plays Laura Palmer's mother from Twin Peaks. She has a little role. Emily Stoffer, who's uh, David Lynch's wife. She has a, a little role. It's the parents by Terry Crews. Yes. As the street person number three. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre to see him popping up in one of the most intense scenes in the movie. <laughs> yeah. Laura Haring and the voice of Naomi Watts. There's a whole bunch of people involved in a lesser degree as well. Yeah, there's so many cast members and so many small scenes that mm. may just feature a character for a small moment. Mm. You won't see it again. Of course, the cinematography is by David Lynch himself, shot on a DV tape recorder from the 90s. The image quality is quite interesting. And of course, the, the music is composed in part by David Lynch himself. And he's actually singing on a couple of tracks. And he also had a little collaboration with a Polish composer called Marek Zabrowski, who did some music consulting and uh, wrote some music for the movie. And I think Angelo Benalamenti did one string part that he did not want to be credited for. (laughs) Okay. And there's a song by Beck there too, Black Tambourine, which is a song from Guero, one of my favorite Beck albums. And there's some various other stuff there too. It's uh, it's an interesting soundtrack. Mm, Definitely. It's also worth noting that longtime collaborator Mary Sweeney is a producer. She's also a former wife of David Lynch. They work together on, on many of his films. Yeah. This actor, Peter J. Lucas, who plays Laura Dern's husband. Previously, I know him primarily from an FMV adventure video game. Gabriel Knight, the Beast Within, where he plays the antagonist. I do not know what else he's done, but he's, no. he's a good presence, that guy. He is a Polish actor, I think. And uh, a lot of the actors are Polish. By some weird coincidence, Poland suddenly started to become a part of this movie. David Lynch has talked about it. He sort of knew the camera crew there. I think it was a movie festival. I'm not sure. but Yeah, it was connected to some part of the um, film milieu. I think also the school there in Wush. I think it had been featured in some festivals and it, it got um, associated with the film industry. And he knew like a, a number of movie crew there. And so he wanted to shoot some scenes and they got some actors for him. They put up a location, they got the the set ready and they they shot the scene the same day. Like everything happened very quickly in this production. Of course, it's helped by having just a DV cam and very simple setup and a small crew. But yeah, it's only like Poland was a part of it. And then a lot of Polish actors sort of started playing parts in this movie. And there appeared like the secondary, almost like mirror image plot that happened in Poland because of the whole... uh, script that was made from a previous movie that never got made in Poland that was supposedly cursed but it's interesting the way things sort of fell together in this movie yeah we should probably try and pass the 
Well, usually we would say that there will be plot spoilers, but this is perhaps one of the movies where that doesn't mean anything. Well, it's so difficult to pass the plot, but definitely to follow. I think you should have watched it, maybe recently even, because it's a pretty complex plot or storyline, but let's have a go anyway. Yeah. So it's partially set in L.A. and partially set in Poland, in Rusz, and a part of L.A. also known as Inland Empire, more like a residential area, I think. Mainly we follow the character played by Laura Dern, who is an actor called Nikki Grace. And she's been offered the role of a character called Susan Blue for the film On High in Blue Tomorrows, where she's playing against Justin Theroux's character, Devon Burke, who plays the character Billy Syed. And the director for that fictional film is Jeremy Irons' Kingsley Stewart. Yeah. And if it starts to sound confusing already, well, the film isn't any less confusing. Like the borders between what's Inland Empire, the movie we're watching, and the film that they're making quickly starts to blur a bit. Anyway, she, she's visited by this Polish lady who claims to be a neighbor. I don't believe her. That's Grace Zabriskie. And she has this kind of haunted tale she starts to reveal about some well we'll get into that later <laughs> anyway uh, and she says that she's been cast for this movie before laura don't know she is and then it kind of jumps in time a lot and then we're at like a table read with the director and the two actors and jeremy irons is startled they're all startled by some element that we don't quite know what it is there's some noise yeah. And the studio is supposed to be only for them. So Justin Thoreau's character, Devon, he uh, goes to check it out. And he sort of looks into this window in the back of the studio and he doesn't see anything. He comes back and then Jeremy Irons tells about the cursed legacy of this production, which unsettles everybody. The curse of the movie, it was never finished because the two main characters were killed. And so, yes, there's this parallel story that happens in Poland. It's very difficult to explain the plot because it's so surreal and it's essentially an art movie. It's not really a linear story at all. I don't quite agree with that. You don't think it's an art movie? No. Well, it's definitely not an art movie in the sense of films that you show at a gallery. But I mean, it, it starts not necessarily unconventionally, a bit fragmented, but it becomes more and more fragmented and quite difficult to pass plot-wise. Like there's a lot of scenes with... Laura Dern's character's identity being very unclear whether or not she's the actor or the uh, role that she's playing and her relationship with the actor. Because Justin Theroux's character, he's flirting a lot with her. And he's also being told by these Polish gangster types that he has to stay away because Laura's husband, Peter J. Lucas' character, Piotr Kroll, he seems to have some connection to... He's a very powerful man. Well, yeah, some sort of Polish gangster <laughs> stuff. And yeah. The film opens with this scene of a Polish sex worker who's having some trouble with... It's difficult to see because it's kind of blurred out and stuff, but there's obviously some violent episode or something. And yeah. she's sitting in a room after that watching a TV. Yeah, it's like a hotel room, an upscale hotel. Yeah, very, very sterile and very cold. And there seems to be some sort of connection from that gangster sex work milieu and her husband and some of the people around him it's never clearly defined as such but um Thoreau is still kind of flirting with her and we can't quite tell whether because the fictional film is also about an illicit affair and uh, it's constantly blurred the line between what's quote-unquote real and what's what not and it's because this sort of shifting in and out between these modes of these two characters and these two ostensibly real life characters 
But there seems to be like this sort of implication of, of a love affair and maybe the husband knowing and maybe repercussions. Or, and there's also this feeling that something bad is going to happen. Like A lot of people Definitely. are constantly implying that murder or violence is going to happen. Mm. And then it kind of goes into these more like segments which seem more or less connected with the story of these actors and their affair and the possible consequences. And it kind of seeps into this more nightmarish fever state almost of different parts. And it seems to me maybe not to be related very chronologically, but that there is a chronology that's difficult to pass. But in some segments, Laura Dern's character and her husband's character, Peter Kroll, they're living in the Inland Empire area in this shabby residential shitty house with like a garden. But the actor, Nikki Grace, she lives in this huge stately LA home. Yeah, it's, it's like this disgustingly Baroque giant mansion with like gilded columns and right. it's so like so extravagant and this other house is almost the opposite almost not quite white trash but there's something very like it's low like, class it's like the lynchian white trash that you see in a lot of his stuff and their relationship seems to be tearing apart and he's kind of absent and he's kind of inviting his slightly uncouth friends and yeah there's like a lot of sort of ruffian like characters that seem to be friends of his and there's talk of him being involved in some i think lord Dern's character says uh, like some shitty eastern block country and him having something to do with the circus and it's yeah, all very yeah. like you don't really know which character is talking about what because there's like three layers to every mm. character yeah in chronology in in place and time and in social status but there seems to be some sort of connection to the old country for him and at times she's also in Poland with some of these sex workers and there's also some scenes of sex workers on the street at the small house they have they play a kind of important role but in my mind they function sort of as a Greek chorus mm. they sort of ask questions to the main character and sort of respond to stuff and point out stuff in the movie it's very interesting but they sort of have two different versions maybe more of themselves mm. uh, they have like this this Hollywood uh, streetwalker mm. sex worker sort of version and they have this Polish early like 1920s something maybe sex workers and this, sometimes they switch between the two yeah. and sometimes they like drag Laura's character between the modes it's very very surreal and dreamlike and listening to you talk about the plot it sounds like you're explaining a dream yeah <laughs> because it makes just as much sense it is sense very dreamlike and in a more or less like that first half of the film there's, there's a scene of a character played by Julia Ormond who's talking to a police officer and that she's been hypnotized to murder someone with a screwdriver and the, uh, she's talking about this character which we later learn about is the phantom who's kind of it's difficult to say whether or not he's a, a person or some kind of evil entity, almost like a Twin Peaks and Bob or something. He's kind of... He's a power yeah. in some sense. You don't know if, if it is a phantom. That's what he's sort of... He has power part. over people. He has way. power over people, whether he's a real real character. Like, it's so <laughs> difficult to talk about this because it's also a movie about making movies and characters and theater. Like, it's so... Julia Oman's character at some point meets Laura Dern's character and stabs her and kills her, apparently. As she told the police officer, yeah. she would. And the camera suddenly pulls out as the director says, cut, that's Jeremy Irons' character again. And everyone around kind of acts as if this has just been a shoot. But Laura Derns, she's been in this catatonic state throughout most of the movie. And she's still in that 
And she was just killed. Yeah, and she's she's somehow not left the role, and it's still very unsettled. And Jeremy Allen says, "Oh, you were wonderful. You played beautifully. Yeah. How are you doing? What's going on?" And she's like a zombie. Yeah, and she just wanders off, and she enters this movie theater where she sees scenes of the film they've been making, but also of what's happening then and there. And she has a confrontation with the Phantom, where she shoots him. Yeah, she follows him into some sort of corridor. There's a lot of corridors and walking in corridors and hotel rooms and rooms. And like, yeah, it's so Kafkaesque in that sense. Right. It's like small, confined, disturbing spaces. And there's a scene with the lost girl, the sex worker in Poland we saw initially, and Laura Dern's character where they, they meet, I think, in the same location that we saw in the very beginning. And they kiss. Yeah. They and embrace. She, and it's worth noting that she sort of has been watching everything unfold on this TV. Yeah. Like, she's basically our proxy. Almost. Yeah. She's yeah. been watching this. But she's also involved in the story. And she's also been watching this um, kind of darkly surreal sitcom, which David yeah. Lynch made for his website called Rabbits, which is basically just three human characters with rabbit heads speaking in lines across each other. They're saying things and they don't match what the other person's saying. Yeah. And there's some spooky um, music and some laugh track. That's also on the television. And here at the end, Laura Dern kind of walks in on that set as well. But then the rabbits disappear. And yeah, yeah, that's so creepy. At the very end, there's like a dance scene with Nina Simone uh, yeah. performing Cinnamon and the sex workers are dancing and, and there's a lumberjack and there's yeah. a monkey yeah. which is mentioned in an earlier story yeah. when Laura Dern is dying I think street person 2 is talking about her friend who had a monkey where she stayed uh, it's very interconnected and, and convoluted right so. it seems to have a thorough line emotionally it feels almost as if it resolves in some way but you're not really sure how there's like and a, why a, a and... kind of positive vibe to the end maybe at least for the lost girl but it's very hard to, to tell and and ultimately it's really it's up to you what you get from it because it's so yeah like we're not looking to deformed. unpack like that puzzle box no. of this film but more you know talking about specific scenes and what kind of impact it has on us as an audience and what's interesting about it. that's kind of the project here. yeah I mean, we've talked about we don't really like puzzle box movies, but we love we love movies that you can talk about. You don't have to unfurl the plot in a nice straight line. This movie is incredibly interesting, in part because it doesn't really have a conventional plot. There's so many layers to it. And it's also like the plot is so tied to the way the movie was made yeah. because it was made without a script to begin with. David Lynch would write a script for each day of shooting and just handed out the day of shooting to the actors who did not know what part or what they would be saying or anything. So it sort of grew from there. And it seems like it was coming from David Lynch's like very off-the-cuff and intuitive way of making mm. movies, where he's always like, if something happens, he rolls with it. He's, mm. he's very much like a jazz musician when it comes to like being a director. He's always open to ideas, and he's, he's always talking about how he wants to try to catch ideas. And that's basically like how he did with the, the plot of this movie. He has likened it in interviews, several interviews, to basically writing a script but filming each scene as you're writing a scene. And he didn't know what would come of it, but he sort of had this feeling that it would come together. And he's also like this believer in like the universality and like the oneness of the universe and things coming together. It's like there's this sort of almost mysticism about the way he thought this project would come together. And it, yeah. it, it did come together. Now, he spent four years making it, as you say, scene by scene. And I kind of think that it, it sort of developed through like the project he was making on his, his website. He was making smaller video projects there. And I guess at the end of that sort of project, he, he started wanting to develop into something else. I'm not sure he was very clear about what it was supposed to be initially. 
No. But um, he got some actors that he knew. I think he had like a $100 a day kind of contract or something. And they'd show up and they'd, they'd shoot something. Like He knew he wanted to work with Laura Dern. They hadn't worked since Wallet Hart. Yeah. And, and then one day she walked up to him because she had just moved in next to him. Yeah. And that's how she sort of got involved with Inland Empire. And it's like, again, the sort of intuitive sense of movie making. He's just, oh, that happens. The universe is telling me mm. I should roll with this. And that's the feeling I get from it. Also, last episode, I talked about how I like that David Lynch is one of those movie makers that knows what he wants. But what I sort of mean isn't that he knows in advance what he wants. Mm. It's more that like when he sees it, he knows it. Yeah. So when he's directing, it seems to me anyway, and, and the way he's explained it in several interviews I recently watched, that he sort of he can sort of feel the bits moving. And when they sort of coalesce into mm. a whole, he sort of knows, okay, there it is. Mm. But he doesn't know it in advance. He's sort of exploring the movie along with us in a mm. sense. And the actors definitely did. Like Lord Dern has talked a lot about how she basically was finding out about the movie every day. Yeah. And even until like it screened in Venice Film Festival. Like she hadn't watched it until then and she was like, I don't really know what the movie is about. Yeah, I don't think any of the actors had any idea what the thing was in itself. Yeah, and Justin Theroux, I think, said like, I don't even think David Lynch knows. And it's kind of beside the point, really. Yeah. It's not supposed to be a discussion about what it is about in the sort of test result, like test answer way. Mm. There's no clear answer to anything, yeah. really. Funnily, it's got this tagline, a woman in trouble, <laughs> yeah, which is the it. marketing department. They had a really hard time <laughs> trying to find out how to mark this film. And he said something about a woman in trouble and they just took that yeah. short thing and just put it on the poster. It's so silly. And I mean, in some sense it is. Yeah, but, uh... it is. It's like, uh, can you at least give me some sense of what the movie's about? Yeah, it's a woman in trouble. Yeah. I think like that's one thing we can agree upon about the plot. Mm. There is a woman in trouble. I would say there are several women in trouble. I think the film opens very strong. Like it starts out in darkness and there's, there's a wind or something you hear. And it feels immediately very ominous. And you have these black and white scenes with the, the lost girl and her handler or pimp or whatever. But their faces are completely blurred and you can't really see anything. I think it's a John. I think it's like yeah. a customer. Yeah, a customer. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But again, almost everything is up for interpretation in this movie. And her scene sort of plays out without knowing exactly what's going on. But she's clearly very upset and crying and, and watching this television. We see like a bit of this rabbits, this very surreal kind of sitcom. Uh, yeah, it's like the Donnie element. Darko rabbit, except like not scary. It's like just very like almost a neutral rabbit in a suit. Yeah. <laughs> it's strange. And then it cuts to Grace Sabrinsky. Walking between houses in, in these LA, like these really fancy houses. And immediately, she's so unsettling. I don't know, something about how he films it and how she acts. I just feel really put off immediately. She just seems like a monster almost in human shape. And she's wandering kind of, seems a bit unsteady and not. And she's intruding into Laura Dern's house. She's kind of inviting herself in. Yeah. But she also seems like more like a force yeah. than a person, yeah. right? She, she, I don't, I don't think she goes home and like makes a cup of tea and like I can't picture that. She's like almost like too insane to be a regular human. She's like almost like a oracle or a seer from yeah. a Greek drama yeah, or yeah, whatever, yeah. like or, an ill omen. That yeah, she's, uh, she's an omen. She tells this tale. She calls it an old tale about a boy who's passing through a doorway into the world. It's causing a reflection that gives birth to evil that follows him. And then she has this variation about a girl who was lost in a marketplace as if half-born. 
while the alley behind the marketplace was the way to the palace. The way she talks about it feels like she's talking about Laura Dern's character, Nikki Grace. Yeah. And she says, like, you've gotten the part for the role that you've wanted. And Laura Dern doesn't believe it because she doesn't think she's going to get it. And then she says, look over there. She points to the couch at the other side of the room. And then you're going to see that you've got the role. And Laura Dern turns around and looks... And then we kind of jump forward in time and there's a scene where she's with her girlfriends and she gets a call where she's told she has the role. Yeah, but is she actually seeing that? Or like, because the way the editing is done is such that you infer a lot of stuff because of editing, right? And David Lynch talks a lot about this mm. just because of how you place stuff. And the implication is sort of that either she's having a vision of the future or she's literally seeing herself in the future. And of course, in later in the movie, there are scenes where she's literally seeing herself, but it's fucking bizarre. In this case, actually, at the very end of the movie, we return to this house and these two characters. And it's almost as if we've left the vision of the film back to the situation in the beginning. Yeah. We also see a little bit of a younger, seemingly younger or more pure or innocent version of Laura Dern sitting on there. He has a blue dress on sitting on, on the far couch. It's almost like a framing device playing out elements of this old tale she's told. Yeah, the way she tells them are like moral parables or like some old stories you got to get a lesson from, like you got to learn from these stories. And yeah, it does sort of feel like it could be a framing device, but at the same time, it doesn't have to be. You could interpret it as that. It's very ambiguous. Yeah, because the editing is so incredibly like schizophrenic and subconscious almost. But the the next scene again, that's when they're at the casting table and the scene plays out where they're kind of testing their roles. And like the, the scene that they're playing out, it's super banal. It's like this soap opera drama dialogue, right? But the acting is so good. Yeah. I mean, like, the acting in this film is amazingly good. And Justin Thoreau and Laura Dern, when they're playing these almost like stupid drama lines, it just feels really true immediately. It's kind of similar to what he does in Mulholland Drive, where he has Naomi Watts playing out this scene for a movie, an audition, right? And it feels super intimate and very potent. It's kind of mirroring that a lot, I think. Yeah, I think, like, the movie they're trying to make seems like a terrible movie. And it's sort of reminiscent of, you know, the show within the show in Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. That's sort of (laughs) incredibly melodramatic uh, daytime TV drama. It it reminds me of that. It's like so sentimental. But the way it's acted like Laura Dern and Justin Thoreau, they're like killing it with these terrible, terrible lines. Mm. You see tears in their eyes and it's like so intense. And it's not just the movie scenes. Like, there are parts in the movie that also feel like sort of weirdly over-dramatized or melodramatic in a way. But the way it's acted against seems so real. And then there's the way it's shot. Like, this gritty DV quality that makes it seem, like, voyeuristic in a way. Like, you're watching something that seems a lot realer than something... Like, if you would put it, like, on this beautiful Panavision camera or whatever and, like, have this beautiful cinematography, it will feel a lot cheesier, I think. Yeah, but then when Justin throws after he's heard the disturbance, he's checking it out and he comes back. And then uh, Jeremy Irons' character starts to tell this story of a cursed script. I mean, I get kind of Ringu vibes. It reminds me of that kind of Japanese horror curse, like a videotape, you watch it and you die. And, you know, there was a whole bunch of these Japanese horror films that had that kind of an element that kind of looked like one missed call or... I was thinking more of like Shakespeare and the play that must not be named and stuff like that. (laughs) Macbeth? Yeah, like it's a pretty old motif of cursed plays or like theater stuff and cursed stories or, or stuff like that. I find it very fascinating and also kind of like, I don't know, 
kind of reminds me of Bergman too, because he's always like doing movies about theater and like masks mm. and roles and stuff like that. It's very like part of the whole, like he's, Lynch is essentially making movies about making movies and is making movies about actors, but he's also like making a movie about Hollywood mm. and the dark side of stardom. And there's so many weird layers that have to do with roles in acting. Mm. And, uh, and, and like the dark underbelly of an industry. Yeah, yeah, right. Dark the, forces. The, like the dark uh, fates of many people that go to follow that dream and they end up horribly. Like famously Elizabeth Short, The Black Dahlia or like other like famous Hollywood crimes. And there's this dark darkness that lynch really like taps into i think with this story about this haunted movie which was an, an old polish movie called like 47 in polish or mm. something. it's uh very compelling and strange i really like that scene and jeremy Irons' portrayal i mean he, his character is great he plays it as a, this very charming but kind of superficial director guy i really like his role and yeah i mean jeremy Irons is an amazing actor and he's is really good in this because while he does seem like I don't know he is very charming like you said he also seems very like like he's making this schlocky movie really and he's <laughs> trying to make it sound like it's gonna be the next big thing yeah, like yeah. it's gonna be the next Casablanca or whatever yeah. and it's so stupid it sounds almost like an old school melodrama yeah I think sure. I guess David Lynch would be quite drawn to or that sort of thing I mean he loves the golden age of Hollywood so he's definitely drawn to that sort of thing but I think it's worth mentioning also that Harry Dean Stanley is playing the director's assistant yeah and he's so he's one of the funniest roles in yeah. this kind of not very funny movie he's always trying to like hustle uh, a couple of dollars out of everybody he meets yeah he has a sad tale he tells about every time yeah. <laughs> like word for word like he used to be able to be his own man or something like that mm. then he like gets a couple of bucks yeah one of the things this film does really nice is it has a few of these scenes where it's just a bit of awkward silence. Like when Harrodine Stanton and Jeremy Irons come in and they sit down before they really start to rehearse. It's just, it's just a moment of awkward silence or just nothing happening where people just looking out into the room. This kind of a pregnant pause before the scene is kind of restarted again by Jeremy Irons' character. And it does that a couple of times also with this um, Harrodine Stanton character when he's relating his tale and, and kind of asking for money, trying to be indirect about it. Yeah, there's this pause after he's finished his spiel, and you don't really know what's happening. And then, like, slowly, like, Laura Dern takes out her wallet yeah. and <laughs> gives him a couple of dollars. And then there's another pause, mm. and, like, Justin Thoreau's character yeah. is, like, like, reluctantly. Yeah, he takes definitely out his doesn't wallet. want to. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, he sees Ardy and Staten's character doing the same thing, and he's like, he's annoyed yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's yeah, really funny but those like pauses they're great they remind me of like when you're in a new workplace or whatever yeah. and you have like colleagues you don't really know and yeah. it's like those kind of pauses it's really well observed i think it, it feels very genuine yeah and uh, lynch is so good at those kind of observations i think and like um, there's so many elements of this film that has that kind of, you know, almost realism to it, like the clothing in this film, like people wear kind of shabby clothes and yep. not exactly well fitted clothes. They're not made up like Jeremy Irons, like his face just looks like a like an, a normal day to day face, yep. not like he's been through makeup and stuff. And yeah, it has this very sort of realistic quality to it in, in everything you see. Sometimes it even looks a bit cheap, and I like that. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, the costume. I mean, it's in 2006, which was a terrible period for fashion in general. And, <laughs> and everybody has like these poorly fitting tops and like these cheap <laughs> jeans. It's like, 
everything looks so ugly but very like you believe it like it looks like totally normal people from that period yeah it, it's almost if you just met them at the street and started talking to them like it looks very casual in a sense yeah and it adds to the sort of veracity of having this dreamlike quality but yet it feels like something you really could dream mm. like it feels like sort of vague memories of real people and mm. I, I love that few people do dreams as well as david lynch mm. the dreamlikeness is sort of so essential to understanding this movie i think like that's really when it comes down to like really get into that mode of movie making i have a good quote by him by the way because at the press conference at the venice movie festival yeah. he, of course he's asked again and again and again but one reporter goes so what what's this movie about and he's like it's supposed to make perfect sense or whatever and it's like he really means that it's not like trying to get a cheap laugh or whatever mm -hmm. but everybody's so dissatisfied with the answer <laughs> they're like okay and there's like the silence like it feels like one of the silences from Inland Empire. It's, it's so beautiful. He also talks about like that you got to sort of feel, think your way through the movie. Like mm -hmm. you, you're not supposed to think like just with your mind. You got to use your subconscious as well. Mm. And he's also talked about how cinema is, is sort of this medium that goes beyond words. You don't have to just use words. You can use dream logic. Like it's, it's a vehicle where you can actually use dream logic and convey it to people. And he talks about how dreams have logic to you, but it's hard to convey in words, like if you're talking to a friend. But cinema can do that. Cinema can actually speak in dream logic. And I think that's so beautiful and so incredibly integral to, to this movie in particular. It's like the essence of that. It is dream logic, but it does have meaning. But the meaning is like, it's so personal. You sort of have to connect these dots by yourself and the result you get feels very real because of it. Much more so than watching a stupid melodrama like they're trying to make or whatever. Yeah, we talked about it a bit in the Raise Red episode about, you know, he conveys a lot of emotional truth, I think. And this film is almost like a fever dream in the sense that after you've seen it and you're trying to remember it, you remember the start maybe and you remember some of the ending and maybe some situations you remember. But having like a picture of it, it becomes quickly very vague, just like you're working from this dream and you remember bits of it and like physical spaces and time yeah. and it all kind of distorts so much like weird liminal spaces that doesn't feel real like mm. the the weird mid-century furniture that just feel like feels like something remembered from a dream it doesn't feel like something that was actually bought in a shop and the dreaminess of the movie like the first two times i watched it i fell asleep towards the end so it carried on into a real dream for me so when i <laughs> so, so when i recall it, it it is literally remembering a dream for me so it's it's very strange this time I managed to, to get through the whole movie without entering a nightmare. But I think that sort of speaks to the quality of the movie. Because it wasn't because I was bored. It was more like I was hypnotized. <laughs> yeah, the phantom hypnotized <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. It was terrible. Though. I had terrible dreams. I know I talked about this before, but it was, it was really nightmares. I can imagine. But like I said, I think it, it actually starts very strong. And like this table read scene. And... Yeah, I mean, it's at its most coherent in the beginning. Yeah. And it's very potent, I think, because it feels very threatening and it gives these, you know, parables about like the, the old tale and this cursed script that kind of engages you in a way that, that's pretty strong, I think. Yeah, there's this very real sense of mystery to it. There's almost like, I wouldn't say noir, but it does have a lot of noir feelings like these, these beautiful female characters mm. in strange situations mm. and a lot of like mysterious sort of uh, thug-like characters mm. and all of this tied into, you know, Los Angeles and stuff. But then it's, you know, elevated and made even weirder by the whole conception of the movie and the, the connections to Poland and everything. And these scenes between, you know, Laura Dern 
Ferran and Justin Thoreau, they're very potent as well. And you can really, you know, you have this overhanging threat that Justin Thoreau's characters had from these these gangster types or whatever. Yeah, I mean, at one point, Lord Ernest's husband yeah. takes him aside and, like, gives him a threat himself personally. Mm. So he's always, like, from day one, just constantly being, like, bombarded with threats, like, don't touch her. So there's definitely this overhanging sense of dread. And, of course, in the beginning, when Grace Sabrinsky's character talks about how Lord Ernest's character got the part, she also mentions that there is supposed to be, like, a murder in the movie. And Lord Ernest's character, she's like, no, no, there's... There's not supposed to be a murder. And that's like the point where she's like, I don't like you talking to me this way. Get out of my house. Yeah. Because her sort of reactions to this woman seem quite natural. Whereas the character seems like we talked about weirdly surreal and terrible. And she seems very threatening in a way. But I love her. You know, as an actor, she's so great. She also has this weird presence in Twin Peaks, for instance. Mm. She's great at having these intense female personalities. Yeah, especially in, I mean, maybe we'll talk more about it afterwards, but her role in The Return, Twin Peaks, almost as in a separate universe, but she's also really scary there. I mean, she's such she's, a presence. She's one of my favorite Lynch... Monsters. <laughs> Lynch monsters. She's so good. Those scenes with Lordan and Justin Thoreau, they're very coherent, and they when we're following those parts of the film, where they're kind of interacting about this romance. Although you're not quite sure which character you're dealing with, where it's the actor or the actor playing a role. There's several situations where you think, okay, this is the actual flirt between the actors, but then it turns out like there's a movie thing that comes in and says, ah, well acted, well done. Yeah, and even when they are not acting, mm. sometimes it's like it seems like some dialogue out of the movie. I remember one scene when, when they're backstage and Justin Thoreau's character is like, uh, so do you want to go get dinner later? And Laura Dern's character is like, yeah, I know you. I bet you know this great little Italian yeah. restaurant <laughs> where the food is really good. And like, it seems like kind of like a cheesy movie line, mm, but mm. she delivers it in a very convincing way. Mm. And so the lines are like constantly being blurred, which creates this incredible tension and yeah. this anxious feeling of not knowing what's happening. And it's like the unknown is always scary. And this movie has so much unknown in it. There's uh, so much ambiguity. You know, yeah. you don't know where you are in relation to what's happening. And you don't know where the other actors are in relation to each other. Yeah, it's, it's genuinely unpleasant at times and very intense and just very overwhelming. And plus the way it's shot, it's so harsh and digital. And there's these like artifacts because the digital takes it looks ugly in a very beautiful way almost yeah because he shot the film on a sony pd 150 which is the kind of camera that i was using when i started film initially like it was used a lot for television for local news and that sort of stuff i can imagine like movie schools and stuff like that too would yeah maybe use that not so much these days they've been phased out but of course around like in the early 2000s it was used quite prominently for that sort of stuff it's not modern video it's dv which has its own quality like it burns out pretty quickly yeah you have this and... like really blown out brightness and like it looks disgusting but very cool and like lo-fi and like this actually what it reminds me of is early cinema it looks like old cameras from the like 20s 30s and the digital gaining which is like the noise it looks a lot like film grain in a way i mean it's different but it has a lot of those qualities of a rough young medium that's not come technologically as far as as into a beauty standard like it has a kind of a fuzziness to it it's kind of a softness in the lines that yeah, it's uh, organic at times it's like almost queasy because you feel like the lines are moving and like objects are sort of pulsating 
It's definitely, I, I know what you mean, but at the same time, it's like almost the direct opposite of old time, classic, beautiful cinematography. It's so like filthy. It feels like it's from a snuff movie at times. And I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that the sex industry and stuff is often equated with like bad camera equipment and stuff like that. So a lot of it feels like found footage. It does have this sort of low budget indie CD quality to it. That's also beautiful because, I mean, David Lynch's cinematography is very beautiful in this movie, although it's quote unquote shot on a bad equipment or outdated equipment even then. Yeah, the technology, it has a starkness to it, I think. There's something very bleak and it feels very revealing and fragile at the same time. When you look at people's skin, it doesn't do a lot of the work that film does that beautifies. That's why I think it's also been very popular for like these um, found footage horror film type things because it it has this um, confrontational starkness that's very hard-edged and very unforgiving. And, you know, you have this concept of realism in films like a documentary looks like this, you know, an expensive cinema film looks like this. And, I mean, it's, it's not any more real, but it's kind of the language of realism as we know it in film medium. Yeah, like using uh, shaky cam and stuff sort of suddenly emerged because it was trying to emulate documentary and found footage. Like, it's sort of stuff you use to document real world, world stuff. The language of that is being introduced into cinema at around the time of the, like, the late 90s and stuff. Yeah, mostly for horror and maybe some... For satire. sure, but also like the rise of more cheap and available digital cameras also made movie making easier. And a lot of the quality of the images in Inland Empire remind me of a lot of like terribly made student and B movies from around, you know, the turn of the millennium. And I see a lot of that, like people look so pathetic and un-cinema-like and un-Hollywood-like in those movies. It looks sad. And it has this quality of like, you can't afford to make this movie. So you're just trying to like pull resources from, and, and you know, using ketchup as blood. And like, I watched a lot of really terrible movies and reviews about really terrible movies lately because I find it incredibly interesting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the kind of outsider cinema stuff. And it really reminds me of that. Bad movies from around that time. And I love that he's using sort of that medium but in a way that's so beautiful and competent and using that harshness to give the scenes this veracity that it wouldn't have otherwise. Like I mentioned, if you'd shot those sentimental scenes in a beautiful way, it would come off cheesy. Of course, David Lynch has done that many times, you know, in his earlier stuff and it works, but I love that he's using this shitty camera for the movie. Well, I think he sees the beauty in the qualities of this technology. And I, I think there's something very interesting about how it treats light as something that kind of burns out very quickly into this very harsh white, how it eats into the lines next yeah. to it. And, and that's such a Lynchian motif too, the sort of electricity and brightness and the sort of crackling static of industry and mechanical stuff, those kinds of things. It's very Lynch. It's, it's almost the most Lynchian movie he ever made because he makes no concessions to like a huge movie studio or whatever. He's just making this because he wants to create this thing. And I love that about it. Yeah. And, you know, I think he uses it excellently. And he's the kind of director who can get away with, for example, lo-fi effects or very yeah. simple means. Like he has this scene at the end where 
Laura Dorn shoots the phantom and there's a close-up of the phantom and there's obviously just pointed a light straight at him and he has his almost serene expression in his face and he's kind of burned out and he's just looking with his mouth open and it's a few back and forth where she's shooting him several times and then there's like a double exposure of a twisted version of her face on top of his and then afterwards kind of a, a monstrous face with black eyes and a mouth that's bleeding. I mean, both of them look like creepypastas. They definitely <laughs> do remind of creepypastas and they are, you know, extremely unsettling. I mean, that is, for me, that's one of those moments in films that are genuinely scary. Just Yeah, there are a couple of moments in this movie that are genuinely terrifying, yeah. much more than a regular horror movie would be. But I like that those effects also reminds me of early cinema, like the way of just using what you have at hand and, you know, ingenuity of, of mm-hmm. making stuff work even though you don't have like CGI or whatever. feels like he really wants to do those things. He'd rather do it his own simple way than hiring some expensive CGI studio to do it for him. I mean, he couldn't afford that at the time anyway, but I don't think he would have even if he had the opportunity. Um, there's, there's a lot of skill involved because even though you can kind of see the method, it doesn't detract from the efficiency of it. It still looks great and it still resonates strongly. It's very effective. I mean, if that had been the student film, you would have noticed immediately what it was and it, it would have taken the air out of the bags yeah it's astounding how well it works i mean he does a lot of the same stuff in the return yeah Uh, there's a lot of sort of cheap looking effects but he makes it work Mm. in some sort of strange and magical way sort of wills it into working and it does he has the audacity to put that shit in a really good movie and it just works that's kind of how i feel about some of the dialogue that could almost be satire as well it's just like the chemistry between the actors and like how the camera captures the small moments is very potent. I mean, it's incredibly well acted. David Lynch, he had this campaign to get Laura Dern an Academy Award for her role. In yeah, yeah, movie. yeah. <laughs> uh, he famously had this uh, publicity stunt with a cow and stuff. But yeah, the actors do such a good role. And that's another thing. David Lynch has talked about how his camera choice also had a very positive impact on the actors' performances. Because you get a much more intimate feeling. There's not this giant, incredibly expensive piece of equipment in front of you. It's way more personal. It's this small thing. So it's actually often talked about in photography as well, that oftentimes if you want to do really candid shots and stuff, you don't want to bring like this huge system camera with like this giant flash and stuff uh, that looks like you're coming to like document a street accident or whatever. You might want to have maybe a bit less expensive camera, maybe a smaller camera, and you're able to get closer to a sort of veracity when you're taking photographs. David has just talked about this and, and how he's able to get these amazing performances in this movie. In terms of like still image portraiture, I think there's a lot of psychology about capturing the person. And I know a lot of these artists, they spend a lot of time talking to the person and getting to know them and getting them into a space where you, when you actually take the image, you kind of manage to capture like an essence of them that's very intimate and personal and and that's the kind of thing I think that David Lynch is very good at. Oh for sure. I mean his method of directing actors reminds me of the way Louis Thoreau interviews his objects. He usually just shuts up and he usually allows them to say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So there's very little quote-unquote directing but he's sort of subtly guiding them and sort of allowing them to go in ways that he thinks would be proper but he's very open to their truth of the role and truth of the script and how they sort of interpret it and i think that's part of why he's like so beloved by many of his actors as a director like they often talk about 
how good of a work experience it is. Mm. Like Justin Thoreau has talked about it's one of the best work experiences he's had is mm. in Line Empire, which is interesting considering how like terrifying the movie is. <laughs> yeah. From quotes and stuff, I've often heard when they ask him questions, he has a poetic metaphor or something like a broken doll, or he uses a strong image to guide rather than saying very specific things, maybe. I mean, he's he's one of the funniest interview objects ever. He seems terrifying to interview because sometimes he will just refuse to answer or give a one-word answer. I remember from the press conference, there's like this one Italian reporter. She goes on this like three-minute-long question really quickly in Italian. It sounds super overwhelming. And I'm sure the interpreter is like trying to like get the words in order. And then after the whole question, they're just like, thank you. <laughs> that sounds like him. He's not going to answer what he doesn't want to answer. No, I think he's like probably more like a statement than a question. And it's like, there's no point in answering that or whatever. And I, I like that he, he answers like that and he interacts with press like that, not because he's trying to be funny. I mean, he is funny. He's he's a fucking weirdo. <laughs> but he's really like genuine when he talks about mm, movies. Yeah. And his genuineness is almost like awkward. Because he refuses to give these like platitudes, and it's fascinating to have a like a modern director, like this contemporary director, that's so true to his craft and true to the way he makes movies specifically. Like when he's asked about inspirations and stuff. There's one interview where he's like, "When I get an idea, it's not Fassbender that's like giving me this idea. I don't know where I get it from, but I'm chasing it. Like it comes out of nowhere, and like the idea is so much more important than like your cinema inspirations and stuff. For him, it's all about this idea of ideas and the idea of subconsciously trying to capture something that's ineffable and hard to describe. And I love that way he goes about making movies his own way in a very like." genuine way even though a lot of people are completely infuriated by it there are a lot of people who view lynch's movies as pure nonsense you know well they're not looking properly are they he's also talked about the process of getting ideas like it's like fishing there's only so much you can do you kind of have to wait till it comes to you and then capture it and use it as it's available yeah, again, it sounds like something like a Buddhist priest, per se. <laughs> it's a visual like... image, you know, he's really good at those, I think. Yeah, it's almost as if he should work with visual images in some capacity. I bet he'd do some cool stuff. In a lot of ways, I think this is a strong parallel to Razorhead as well. Like They're kind of opposite extremes, I feel like. Razorhead has a very concise and simple narrative. Sort of. It's difficult to pass and the themes are complex. All of his experience as a filmmaker, there's a lot of references to other things he's made, like the shabby house they're living in. The rooms have this airy quality, these empty walls. It yeah. feels like the house in Lost Highway, where there's an ominous presence or like there's an ominous vibe where you feel unsafe. It's not a real house almost. Like it feels transitional. And it is. Like the hallways from this room go anywhere. So it's this liminal and eerie and unnatural quality to it. There's carpet on the floor that is sick color mm. and, the, and the lighting in the room is weird. And there's kind of a low ceiling. It feels like a scene from a dream. It doesn't feel like a place where people live and make love and eat food and watch TV or whatever. Feels like this twisted remembrance of a place. Mm. You don't have a, such a clear idea of how the rooms relate to each other. Yeah, right. You, you can see the living room and some corridors, but you don't have a clear idea of the space. Right. It's almost like the thing that a lot of people talk about with Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, that the geometry of the set doesn't make sense. Like the geometry of uh, the Overlook Hotel, like the spaces don't really fit and it makes this uneasy feeling. 
Kind uh, of, but that's still a more settled location. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, that's a super mild version of it. <laughs> this is like the extra spicy version of that. <laughs> it's so, like, every space in this movie sort of twists and intertwines itself with other places. And a door can lead literally anywhere in this universe. And that's so full of potentiality and strangeness. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and that kind of directly happens as well with Laura Dern's character as she's still in the early parts of the film wandering through this doorway with this mysterious tag which says like A-X-X-O-N which we, we don't really know what it is but it's referred to as a radio play or something earlier on and she walks into this back door somewhere and she seems to have travelled back in time to that table read scene and she sees that scene play out in a distance and She's then, the one who made the noise Yeah, Justin Theroux's character comes out and that, that kind of very dreamlike thing about watching yourself that's very nightmarish I think Yeah, yeah the way it sort of pretzels in on itself and suddenly like you're making sense of this thing the way that it makes sense is that it doesn't make sense and it's so it's beautiful and kind of ingenious and horrible at the same time but yeah that scene is like one of the best scenes i think when you sort of see the second viewpoint of that scene it's very iconic I think. yeah and this movie has a lot of cool scenes i mean it's a collection of cool scenes you know what it reminds me of it reminds me a bit of William Burroughs' cut-up technique, yeah, yeah. where he would write a page and then just cut it up either into individual words or in individual sentences, and then just sort of jumbled it up and see what you get. It feels like that, because it feels like maybe behind everything there is maybe a, a more regular story, but the way it's edited and shot and crafted together, of course, it's not a regular story. It was sort of made on the fly, as it were. It's almost like cinematic improvisation, but on a more like directorial and technical level than having the actors improvise, you know? It's really fascinating. There's a quote by Lynch who's talking about the process, the shooting process. And he says, I've never worked on a project in this way before. I don't know exactly how this thing will finally unfold. This film is very different because I don't have a script. I write the thing scene by scene and much of it is shot and I don't have much of a clue where it will end. It's a risk, but I have this feeling that because all things are unified, the idea over here in that room will somehow relate to the idea over here in the pink room. That's pretty much yeah, right. how he relates to... Yeah, it's what I talked about earlier, like the way he sort of sees the universe as this... He talks about the unified field theory and how everything is connected on some deep, deep, deep level. And so it feels like there's this synchronicity will make things coalesce in a way that will work out in the end. I love it. It's magical thinking, and I find it super fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He says they couldn't be a fragment that doesn't relate to everything with a unified field. So, I mean, it's coherent to him on, like, emotional level, at least, I think. Why doesn't Scorsese ever talk about the unified field? Well, because he's not in it. Oh, he's not in it. <laughs> he's specifically excluded from it. I see. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. And... The title of the film also is kind of... The film isn't shot in the, the region called Inland Empire, but I suspect that this, this area with the house maybe is supposed to be in that region and that there's some trafficking or something. There's something about girls being kidnapped. The title came to him because... Uh, of course it came to him. <laughs> Dern told him that her boyfriend was from Inland Empire. That's basically what she said. And he immediately thought, yes, that's the title of the film. Right. He knows what he wants, but he's not planning for it. He's just making sure that he's in the state where he can pick these ideas out. And he picked that title out like that. And I mean, Inland Empire is a kind of an ominous sounding place name. It has these connotations. I mean, empire is not really a positive thing for regular people. 
I like it, but it's sort of I don't really know like how does that connect to the stuff going on. It in sounds the somehow ominous, and it's inland is almost as if we're talking about like the mind or like a psychological state or or a spiritual. It sounds like it could be a description of the subconscious. Yeah. It's the inland empire, right? Not that I think that that's necessarily the meaning, but mm. you know, you can have these associations with the title because it's kind of captivating. It does feel right for the movie, but I can't explain that on any conscious level why why it feels perfect for what's going on. Do they even mention Inland Empire in the movie? I don't. I don't recall. I don't that. think so. It's three hours long. It's so long, mm. and it's like it's made to feel even longer because it's so disjointed. But like, I'm I'm glad he's so like he doesn't give a shit. Like it's going to be three hours. That's his edit of it. When he uh, initially did screenings of the film, he introduced it with a quote from the Brihadaryanka and Panishad, and the quote is. We are like the spider. We weave our life and then move along in it. We are like the dreamers who dream and then lives in the dream. This is true for the entire universe. Yeah, he also used that line in, in The Return, the season three of Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean, he's heavily into like Eastern mysticism and transcendental meditation and all that kind of stuff. But that quote is like pretty perfect for this movie and for his work in general. I'd say, but but yeah, it's pretty apt. It's basically like what he's talking about when he's talking about sort of the meaning or process of the movie. But also, like you talked about earlier, his sort of way of often using imagery mm. to give answers to stuff or to enlighten parts of his works. I think a lot of it has to do with transcending language and understanding through the visual sense. Yeah. And there's a lot of things that is unavailable through just words. I mean, you have to engage the other senses. Yeah. He's talking about it in his movies and when he talks about movie making. He's like, he's talking about it not as if words are inadequate, mm. just that there are other things in addition to like words and consciousness that are really important and really cool because you can use movies to convey these things when words just are enough like uh, the... Uh, Tyrell trope of picture is worth a thousand words, right? But like his movies are not a million words. They're more than words. Like there are these connections. It's like synaptic connections that you make that you don't really have a word for. It's maybe a feeling or like maybe the shadow of a feeling or, or something that's ineffable and, and hard to grasp with uh, your conscious mind. And I mean, you can look at that as a bunch of mumbo jumbo and bullshit. And that uh, read a lot of criticisms about this movie. But usually it sort of boils down to that people are just bored and don't get it, you know? But that's a mindset problem. Like you're not willing to sit down and take the movie on its own terms. But I mean, you got to be in a certain space to watch this movie and have a enjoyable experience. Right. I, I mean, this film isn't for everyone. I mean, it is pretty strange and pretty damn unpleasant. I mean, you should be probably energized when watching it it's so overwhelming it takes a lot of sort of effort from you you kind of have to energize yourself you kind of have to activate yourself and you know your eyes and your head has to kind of be in a focused state i think and probably you know watching it several times helps in terms of navigating it yeah for sure it felt a lot easier for me like third time watching mm. than the first time but even so it's, it's difficult and so dense and impenetrable almost by design yeah, it's from a, just a movie making standpoint, it's just so cool and interesting. It's probably one of his most interesting movies. I think so. I, I mean, it's hard to say, but parts of it, at least, I find to be some of his most interesting stuff. It's very an interesting comparison to Eraserhead in terms of how he's developed 
as an artist, they're both in the margins of typical films. I mean, all the other films kind of fit more easily into narrative cinema, I think. Even if it's like a bit out there, yeah. art house cinema, it's still cinema. But Eraserhead and Land Empire are more like, like I called it art movie earlier. That's not really what I mean, but I mean, it has this sort of art school, like experimental, like uh, nothing is off the table feeling to it. And I love that. Well, I, I don't quite agree with those terms, but I think... You think that is more limited? I think it goes further into surreal cinema and experimental. It uses elements of, of like surreal and experimental cinema in terms of how you relate to the audience. I think that's the big difference with these films and the other ones he's made that he's kind of even more comfortable with our being uncomfortable in a sense. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like it's very postmodern art feeling to it. And I love that. It's very much about the observer and how the observer interacts with the object uh, and the sort of dialogue that goes on between the art and the viewer. But on a much more on an emotional note, I think, rather than on a critical conceptual note. Well, yeah, I mean, for sure. And that's overtly in the movie. But in general, like postmodern cinema, like the way you don't really have one sort of explanation for the movie. Mm. It's very like personal for you. And in that sense, I feel like it has a lot to do with like, I mean, David Lynch is an artist as well. He's a painter and he interacts a lot with art. And art is very important for him when it comes to movie making. And I mean, he's a musician too. These are all interconnected to him. I just, I feel like Inland Empire really like, it vibrates with Eraserhead in a sense that Mm. it feels like this very, uh, total way of making a movie is incredibly personal to him but at the same sense he's making it personal for everybody's watching the movie in a way bigger sense than his other movies so I really do feel like there's a connection between those two but at the same time there's a huge connection between Nolan Empire and Mulholland Drive for instance and the sort of depiction of Hollywood land and actors and auditioning and roles and the sort of the dark and seedy side of fame and all these things I mean, a lot of his work have similar themes and stuff. It's it's very much, like I mentioned earlier, like it's kind of jazzy. He touches often on some yeah. notes. I mean, it, it resonates, I think, pretty strongly with things he's working with in both Mulholland Drive and uh, Lost Highway. But also like the production itself with Eraser Ahead and Inland Empire, similar in the sense that they're kind of outside the movie business, you know, before you get into the industry and you're making your own thing. And then once you've been in that place and you're leaving it and you're going your own direction, like it's connected in the production as well. I think. Yeah. And it's way more like do it yourself. Like both those movies are so like not financed by like major corporations or studios or whatever. Right. They're you couldn't ex- pitch it. Yeah, like you couldn't pitch that to anyone. Like how would you go about it? Like you don't have a script. You go into Warner Brothers and say like woman in trouble. Hmm. It's going to be a woman in trouble. And I mean, you're probably going to get a, a mild rejection immediately. I do really like Inner Empire, but I think he even transcends it with Twin Peaks The Return, where he's taken a lot of the things that he's been carrying and developing, because I feel like you can tell how he's developing as an artist as well, what kind of things he's thinking about and dealing with, you know, both thematically, but also with the film form. And to me, it feels really fully formed in that last season of Twin Peaks, where he's mixing like both low-fi elements with high-fi elements. And there's this um, American um, academic film journalist, I think, who's called Melissa Anderson, who wrote a monograph on Inland Empire. And she had uh, several interesting things to say. One of the things she was speaking about was, the thing she writes about is very focused on Laura Dern's character. And she's talking about like four different roles she identifies or the Laura Dern character. There's the actor Nikki Grace, 
there's the role she plays, which is uh, Susan Blue. And then there's like the merged version of the two, which she identifies as the avenging angel. That's not anything in the film. That's the word she's made up. And then also this character, she has a really like South State accent when she's living in this kind of white trash house or whatever. Like she speaks differently. And, and that, that way of working with the same actor inhabiting different roles, kind of crossing between each other, as far as I can tell, at least, that kind of starts a little bit in Lost Highway. And it's developed further in Mulholland Drive. And it's a very central theme in Ilan Empire. And, and then in The Return, it's like the core of like these characters we're dealing with. Cooper being split into several. Yeah, he's like five characters. In that series, yeah. Yeah, like the return is sort of a coalescing of everything is done up until that point. And I do agree that it's sort of a culmination in that sense. But I really love Inland Empire for its like sheer subconsciousness. Mm. And it's almost like it's not even a stream of stream of thought. It's just a stream of mind almost. Yeah, yeah. Like raw and filtered mind. Like when you're meditating and you're just watching thoughts go by instead of actually just thinking. I love that about it. It's so like unfiltered in that way and almost unedited, even though it's incredibly edited. Mm. Like he leaves in so many weird scenes that don't really have a function or do they, right? It's like all about how you sort of view it. And I think like the return is more formal than that. It's also like a return to more traditional cinematography mm. and stuff. It's very beautiful mm. in a more traditional sense. But again, he uses like weird special effects and a lot of the themes of identity and stuff. Mm. And going back to being like very deliberate in the way he crafts his television season in a way that's sort of displeasing to a lot of longtime fans of Twin Peaks. Mm -hmm. Like no fan service. He's just doing it to chase that idea of his. Mm. And uh, that's admirable. I also think Inland Empire is him at his most, you know, nightmarish and brutal. And there's something very compelling to me about, like, he's done Mulholland Drive, perhaps his most beautiful film to date. And then he kind of strips away all the beauty and just leaves kind of the raw, fragile and very hurtful. Like, Laura Dern's character, she's so... She looks almost catatonic. I mean, the film feels like it's her psychotic state. Yeah, it's a nervous breakdown of a movie. It's, like, so nervous and tense and intense. Yeah, it has this like nervous tension throughout it that's not really ever like it doesn't let down. It's like always so unrelentingly horrible and intense and brutal and scary mm. and like this existential dread that just permeates the movie like this identity crisis like who am i where am i like what uh, am i yeah what am i am i playing a role like am i even real like what is going on like what time do i exist in like it's so unpleasant and horrible and i agree i love that it's david lynch at his perhaps most terrifying like it's way scarier than a conventional horror movie like i mentioned earlier it's just pure terror all it's the way more around unsettling, I think. it even has some jump scares mm, yeah. <laughs> it's funny they don't feel cheap. They feel genuine, like just fucking, ah. Because it's not like you're not tense the rest of the movie. You're like always <laughs> being accosted by horrible shit. Melissa Anderson also had a, another quote I thought I'd read. She's talking about this mysterious tag we see here and there. A-X-X-O-N and a capital N. 
And she says, um, could Axon N be the actual story, the sprawling narrative of the three-hour inland empire? Does Axon derive from A-X-O-N, Axon, defined by Merriam Webster as a usually long and single nerve cell process that usually conducts impulses away from the cell body? Thinking of the extra X in axon, I remember that the letter in algebra means a value that is not yet known, a variable, a quantity that changes, just like Nikki. Yeah, I love her writing on this. It's very good. And I think that is the kind of thoughts you have while watching Elon Empire. Mm. Like, that is probably not exactly what David Lynch intended, but I think it's exactly the sort of reaction he wants from his audience. It's, it's kind of an association, right? Yeah. She's, she's bringing in ideas and trying to explore what you're uh, feeling. Yeah, it's like looking at a Rorschach test. You can imagine a shape. It may not be like anything, but you're drawing a conclusion and a shape from it, and that is an interesting process in and of itself. Very interesting when you're talking about a movie. Mm. It's almost like not a paint by numbers, but sort of like drawing the lines for the shape yourself. I mean, I like her writing on this. And while watching it, I thought a lot about it felt voyeuristic. I mentioned earlier, like the sort of almost like sex video, like mm. feeling of the camera and stuff. And she talks about that in a very interesting way. Like there's a scene in which one of the sex workers shows her tits. And I was thinking like, is this kind of like a bit sleazy? And Melissa Anderson also talks about that in her writing. And she has this anecdote about a friend of hers a fellow lesbian who dismissed Inland Empire as being too male gazy. Yeah. And she sort of critiques the term male gaze as sort of cumbersome and all the more cudgel like by turning it into an adjective. And she talks about recalling Patricia Wright writing in 1999 that feminist film theory has been unable to envision women who look at women with desire, an assessment that largely remains true more than 20 years later, not just in film theory, but in popular culture where the equally reductive term, the female gaze, has taken hold. And I feel it's interesting because a common feminist critique of this type of like female nudity and stuff in movies, especially mm. where, where like the term the male gaze is used, mm. is often in such an incredibly pejorative and negative sense. Mm. But she further then talks about a quote by Eric Balsam in a discussion of Betty Gordon's variety from 1983 in a 2020 article. Well, the quote is, voyeurism is an integral part of psychic life, a terrain of struggle far too important for feminism to vacate. Variety recognizes that there can be power and pleasure in being an object, that the field of gaze will always be marked by dynamic asymmetries, and that women are scopophiles too. And I would add that it sort of goes beyond gender, really. The whole idea of voyeurism and looking at other people's lives and even bodies and sexuality and stuff like that. And I find that very apt and beautifully pointed out. But also, in the terms of David Lynch's cinematography, it's like you can see it almost everywhere, especially from his 90s movies and onwards. These sort of interactions between female characters that actually feel very interesting and genuine, but also sometimes kind of voyeuristic. Hmm. I don't know. I just found it a very interesting discussion on the. It topic. is interesting, and I think there's a parallel to be drawn between him, La Chantier, and maybe even Ingmar Bergman in terms yeah. of male directors who have a very specific gaze and are pretty male gazy to be uh, cumbersome about it. But you know, with a lot of nuance, and it doesn't mean that they can't portray female relationships and female sexuality and nudity in very poignant and useful ways. Yeah, and I mean, a male gaze doesn't invalidate other people's gaze. And like we discussed earlier with the whole point of like this movie being very associative and personal for people viewing it, 
in my view, a very like postmodern take on how to approach the audience and stuff. That sort of way of invalidating, I don't know, sexual imagery and stuff feels very old-fashioned in a sort of well, silly way. I think, I mean, I'm not entirely in agreement with her in terms of there not being other valid examples of like a feminist oh, no, a female no. gaze. And, you know, I think the problem is often that unless you have the alternative in mind, it's not so easy to see maybe what a problem or unfortunate side effect might be. Like, if you look at the cinema of uh, Céline Sciamma, who's this amazing French female director, well, she doesn't necessarily have so much nudity. She has a lot of, like, uh, female relationship and intimacy. That's very clearly not a male gaze. It's very powerful and very intimate, but it is in a very different way. And I think that kind of thing helps inform why some people might feel put off by, let's say, Fontiero. I don't think Lynch does it much, but there is an element of it here. Because it's, it's meant to be an unpleasant film, so... Yeah, of course. I think, I think her point was that in a lot of movies, the idea of women watching other women with pleasure is sort of often dismissed or not even thought about in a lot of feminist cinema discussion. Uh, of course, this does not apply to all feminist cinema discussion, but I think it's a valid point that because it's not often talked about and it can be sort of dismissed. But I, again, I would take it a bit further and say that, well, like I mentioned, I think it feels a bit old fashioned to view imagery in and of itself with that type of intention in a world where we have sort of the death of the author and stuff like that. Of course, on the other side, you have the whole Hollywood system, and a lot of abuse and power imbalances, all those kinds of things. But do they add a lot of value to the work of art in and of itself? I think there's also like a historical context and a definition of meaning and imagery that's so old that breaking out of it is difficult. Mm. But I, th I think like an element of it to help understand, like in a sense, there is a process of othering that you're you're not in it, you're outside of it, looking at it yeah i mean this literally happens in the movie <laughs> yeah definitely that's what i find so interesting about this movie it's so yeah. much about voyeurism and watching and it feels kind of sleazy at points and it feels kind of melodramatic and sentimental and all of that is sort of by intention i feel like very deliberate like i said i think laura Dern's character she looks like she's having a psychological breakdown <laughs> yeah, right for, for three and hours she's very othered from herself and in terms of you know relationship to others and the sex workers that you see you have this perhaps my favorite scene in this film which is in this room in the house where they are you know you said a, a greek choir but almost like the horror version of that like these intense sirens sitting there accusing her with the lights epileptically flashing this really intense moment of questioning and examining yeah and there's like one of them has a flashlight and it's like throwing light around the room yeah. and, and it's like it's incredibly tense and uncomfortable and it almost feels like an introspection in a way a yeah. sort of dialogue with herself because the sex workers almost don't feel like actual characters they feel like more like i mentioned earlier like a greek choir they sort of comment upon and sort of raise questions about the story or the characters and i, I really like that but at the same time it's very uncomfortable and a really like a stroke of genius i think in this movie it's so ineffably david lynchian you know the way he made the film of course leaves a lot of room for deleted scenes and he released 
think it's like a DVD extra or something, something called More That Happened That Night, which is, I think, like 70 minutes of scenes that he did not include. Yeah. Really you, good scenes. If you felt Inland Empire was a bit too short, you can throw <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because it's things that uh, kind of inform it a little bit. There's scenes that are inferred or referred to, like you have the scene of the lost girl, the sex worker from the beginning. She meets the phantom on a bridge and they're talking about they've met before. And that situation is a scene that he's taken out and put in this more thing that's happened that night. Yeah. And few more scenes of these sex workers on the streets, you know, in relationship just to each other. And I think there's a short scene with Peter Kroll, the husband of Lordan's character, in a circus as well. There's some different stuff going on. Yeah, the whole circus uh, subplot. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> weird tangents in the movie. But I, I like that too. It seems like ever-expanding so many different facets of the movie going mm. maybe nowhere or going into some weird Going different tangents. directions, yeah. but somehow tying together as well. Yeah, because of the unified field. Mm. <laughs> this this scene with Laura Dern dying, where she's got stabbed, this scene where she gets stabbed is also such a potent and interesting scene where, you know, she's, she's in the street, she's in this disheveled state. She's trying to run away. Yeah. And she gets stabbed by this person, allegedly hypnotized by the phantom. And she kind of lies down and starts bleeding out. And there's these three homeless people who have their conversation. Yeah, they don't try to help her at all. No. One of them is like, don't worry, you're just dying. But they have their own kind of story that they're telling and their yeah. kind of own parable. And that situation playing out, it's really beautiful as well. It's an amazing scene. And at the end, she holds up a, a light in her face as she's dying. Yeah, and she says something a bit incomprehensible. Like a lot of the instances of dialogue in the movie are often like cryptic uh, and meant to be cryptic. Like again, in a sort of dreamlike thing, you're not quite sure what it means, but it holds some sort of meaning, mm. it seems. And you're sort of drawing lines between things that seem to be connected. It's also a very sad and melancholy movie. It uses a lot of, I don't know, sentimental music. Yeah, it feels very melancholy to me. Yeah, but Laura Dern also has this like incredible sadness to her characters mm. and this like incredible emotional vulnerability. I mean, it's really the like the centerpiece when it comes to like characters and acting is Laura Dern in this movie. Like she's amazing. She's so good in this movie. Mm. And I couldn't picture anybody else doing that role. Mm. And because of her performance, there's this red thread of like emotion Emotionally, it feels the same a lot of the movie. There's a sadness and horror and, and dread. A disconnectedness. For sure. Like this, this almost sense of loss, a loss of identity, a loss of time, loss of love, you know, so much loss. But it's also a beautiful movie. Like visually, it is really beautiful. Yeah. There's a lot of beautiful colors and imagery and horrible faces. And, you know. It's pretty striking imagery. And the sound design, I mean, we haven't really talked about that, but as always, it's very poignant and very strong. Yeah, and deeply intertwined with the imagery. And the music is great, like the music Lynch has made and the compositions by the Polish performer and the various other bits of music is licensed for it. It's all very good mm. and, and fits it perfectly. Like, there's no piece of sound editing I dislike, but there was a lot of small details I love. Like mm. uh, at one point when Laura Dern's character sitting i don't remember which of the characters this is but it's when she's sitting in this rundown government building and she's talking to this clerk or policeman or whatever the yeah. fuck he is it's not made clear he's just sitting there like he's taking a statement from a witness or something 
And at one point, Laura Dern's character gets really angry, and one of her words is distorted. Like mm. it, it gets like really violently ugly mm. audio wise. It's great. Like mm. you're you're not expecting it, but it's so horrible. It really like brings like this incredible intensity to her sentence. And it's like small details like that you have throughout the movie or the audio work is like really not just well thought out, but very creative and very like intertwined with the process of editing together these various sequences. Yeah, he uses both the camera and the sound in a way that kind of makes you aware of the distance between you and, and what you're seeing. I think that's very interesting because it's bound in your experience. It doesn't put you off of the film necessarily. It kind of does the opposite, you know, when, when he distorts that word. Yeah. It's very powerful in a way. It feels very emotionally true, even though nobody would speak like that in real life unless you had a, an amplifier or something. And he uses a lot of ways of distorting or manipulating our line of sight there's like a force of will or like malevolence looming the way he sometimes blurs faces yeah uh, you, you can feel that there's some evil hanging over or yeah or like the last meeting with the phantom where the phantom is obscured by lord Durant's character mm. for like uh, a good like five ten seconds mm. and you're like you know there's something horrible but you can't see it yeah. like you really feel the will and the power more than the visual it's very emotional it creates a lot of tension it's very strong i think even with that shitty dv camera it's so yeah. it's so cool Myself, I kind of like TV as a tool as opposed to, to other forms of video. Not that I dislike that, but there's something interesting about it. It's not about good or bad. It's about what you do with it and what, what are you intending to do. Mm. It's much more important. It's like choosing gear for anything, really. Mm. $10 microphone might be the perfect microphone for the job mm. instead of like a U47 or some insanely expensive microphone that sounds perfect, but... Maybe it has a lot of very detailed high end when you want some distortion or, mm. or like low sounds. So. Definitely. And Lynch is acutely aware of all these things, I think, yeah. as a director. There's also a minor role, very small, by some of the crew. And there's a Norwegian guy called Odger Sater. He's like a camera technician guy. I think he's also done some teaching in Norway. Anyway, so he has a role where he says something like, uh, I made a mistake, we have to switch the lighting. It's one of these kind of meta situations. Uh, yeah, where Jeremy Irons, the director character, is like, move it up two feet. No, no, move it down. That is so like spot on Lynchian humor. Yeah. I love that kind of shit. It's very funny. Yeah, I mean, it, it is an underappreciated movie because it's difficult to appreciate. It is. Um, I mean, it's difficult to watch. Yeah. So by default, it's difficult to appreciate. And it has so many qualities that I really like. And watching it again, I thought was very valuable. I really enjoy it. Yeah. When I think about like my favorite directors, David Lynch is clearly one of my favorite directors, but I never thought of him like being like especially high up on my list of my favorites. But, you know, watching Eraserhead again and watching Inland Empire again, he's really one of a kind. Mm. He's a true original, a maverick <laughs> <laughs> of American cinema or just world cinema. It's, it's great how this fucking weird guy from Philadelphia causing havoc. A special boy. A special lad. Amazing movie. So, Sveren, do you have a recommendation for us this episode? Indeed, I do. So, my recommendation is very short because I don't want to spoil it. Okay. I do recommend that you watch this without reading anything about it. Just watch it. It's a documentary called Tickled from 2016 by uh, David Farrier and Don Reeve. They're like journalists in New Zealand. And the documentary is about 
basically like they find this footage of guys being tickled online mm. Mm. and they find that kind of strange and do a, like a short story on it or something like that and then they see like legal threats and stuff from the united states and uh oh, yeah. weird shit happens from then on okay, uh, okay. just watch it it's very uncomfortable oh. and horrible and some of the weirdest shit i've seen in a long time in great journalism oh so, that does sound interesting yeah watch it <laughs> tickled so do you have any recommendations yeah I guess you couldn't call him a protege, but one of the filmmakers, artists who've been kind of most clearly influenced by David Lynch in a very good way, I think, is is David Firth, who, you know, made a lot of these short, flash, animated, uh, surrealist bits, you know, mostly known for Salad Fingers, though that's not my favourite of his, but he's done, you know, Burnt Face Man and Socks, and he, he typically does these series of... Spoils Priest Toast Boy is yeah, probably my favourite. Yeah, that is a classic. And, you know, he was very active in that early scene, you know, pre-YouTube, just making these weird short things. And they're very funny and kind of unpleasant and weird. And then there was kind of like a, a long period where he, he didn't make so much. And then he started resurfacing a bit. And like four years ago, something like that, he had a new series of, there's three episodes of it. It's called News Hasn't Happened Yet. And I think that's some of his best stuff. And that's my recommendation. His style is different. It's not like drawn cartoons. He's taken footage from like news journalism, like people on the streets and broadcast journalists talking to the camera. And he's kind of deep faked his own face on top of all these people. There's three episodes that kind of have different focus, but it's all about, you know, this chaotic world where nothing means anything and people just say things and everything's a conspiracy and everything's lizard men and there are all these people with their first face just saying these insane crazy weird things and it's real surreal it's so weird and it's incredibly funny and you know i highly recommend checking those out he's done some other stuff there's one called cream that's also really good but the news hasn't happened yet that's golden that's some of the best youtube humor uncomfortable surreal stuff there's out there I haven't actually seen that. I saw Cream, which was wonderful. He doesn't really miss all his animated stuff. It's just marvelous. Yeah, it's great. And he also, you know, does some of his own music. He has this uh, low-cost toy box, I think. And he, you know, he's used a lot of uh, FX Twin and Boards of Canada and Flying Lotus. He's also made a film with Flying Lotus, I think. He has a definite style. Extremely unpleasant. Yeah, and very funny. Very weird. Yeah, funny as fuck. So that's my recommendation. Definitely see it. It's gold. Amazing. That's that for this episode. I hope you enjoyed us talking about Lynch. Next, we're going to talk about a different filmmaker. I have a couple of episodes focusing on slightly more obscure, but also an amazing director called Andrzej Zuwalski. And we're going to start off his 80s, slightly unknown, but amazingly classic and striking film, Possession. If you haven't seen it, it's absolutely super intense, but really enjoyable and weird film. Yeah, if you get the movie, I guarantee it'll be your favorite possession. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonworld.com. You can check us at Instagram or our lists at movie or Goodreads. And the music for this episode was made by the band Umulium. That's Euskarning and Svareogor. That's right. You can also check out their stuff on Spotify. The artwork for this episode was made by me, Thomas Simonson Bambra. And with that, we'd like to bid you adieu.